Welcome to Farscape Friday, Episode 8. We'll be discussing the Farscape episode, That Old Black Magic. I'm Kay here with my co-host Taz. Hello. Let's get started. Welcome back. Here's a quick summary of That Old Black Magic. An evil sorcerer kidnaps John and Crace and puts them in an incorporeal death match in order to feed off their life energy. Meanwhile, Zan reverts to her savage ways in order to free John and potentially the rest of Moya's crew. So this episode starts a proud tradition of trippy episodes of Farscape. Here we have the sci-fi trope of the mind being transferred into another place where the action is happening while the body lies dormant. And so in this case, it's John who makes an extremely poor decision and says yes to this random guy who is obviously pulling stuff out of his mind. I mean, who trusts those kinds of people? And follows him and says yes to see what kind of powers he has and how they can potentially help John. And he gets whammied into this mind world where he ends up meeting with his nemesis, Captain Crace. This is the first time we get a reference to Alice in Wonderland, by the way. And incidentally, I wanted to point out the first reference to John losing his virginity to Karen Shaw on the back of a 4 by which comes up later, which is why I'm mentioning it right now. So anyway, our bad guy's name is Maldus, and he's this all-powerful type being. And he pulls John and Captain Crace into this mind world. And what he tells John is like, John, this is your opportunity to talk to Crace and get him to understand that you really didn't mean to kill his brother. All right, hands up for how everyone thinks that's going to go. <laughs> <laughs> and when he brings Crace in, he's like, Crace, look, I have brought John Crichton to you on a platter. Do you want to go kill him? And yeah, there's a cage match. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that this episode really sets up an interesting dynamic in the John Crace relationship. And that is that John honestly thinks, and we have seen this over and over and over again, that he can talk himself out of any situation. That if he just explained himself well enough, Chris would be like, oh yeah, I guess that makes sense. You know, I guess you didn't mean to kill my brother. Whereas this episode is the first episode where we really begin to understand why Chris is destroying his career, destroying his relationships with other peacekeepers, and essentially chasing John into literally uncharted territories. Like, this isn't even Crace doing this within the bounds of Peacekeeper rule. He's literally going into an, an area that no Peacekeeper has ever necessarily ever gone before. Because a lot of times when they get to these planets, nobody's really heard of Peacekeepers. Yeah, and we see Crace really starting to fall apart in this episode and just how much this quest for vengeance against Crichton has driven him. But... The episode begins when we meet Crace on the command carrier. He's actually just received a message from High Command, Peacekeeper High Command, which basically says, what the fuck are you doing? You are ordered to come back to base, get new orders, and basically answer for this crazy-ass revenge mission that you've put your entire crew on high alert to accomplish. So Crace listens to this message, and he talks with his lieutenant, who's the only other person who's heard this message. And this is right before Maldus pulls him in. And we learn later from Maldus that Crace is actually thinking of obeying orders. Like, he was kind of realizing that he's, he's crossing, starting to cross his line. There's still that awareness that there is still a line to cross. Mm -hmm. What this episode does from a narrative point of view for the whole season is it gives Crace a reason to continue to chase John and the crew of Moya 
further into the uncharted territories because he is basically driven to it by Maldus and this whole death match that he has set up. Because every time that Crichton tries to reason with him, Maldus is there to give another reason for Crace to try and murder him. What comes out of that is basically Crace's backstory and why is he attached to his brother so much in this peacekeeper society that does not value personal ties of any kind? Yeah, and the reason that Crace is so attached to going after John has to do with the family ties. And it's that unlike Aaron, who we now understand grew up on a command carrier, was essentially peacekeeper from birth, Crace actually grew up on a Sebation planet that was not peacekeeper. And he and his brother were air quotes, recruited to become peacekeepers. And then they rose through the ranks. And they were children when they were recruited. Oh, yeah. This was not, you know, 18-year-olds walking into a recruiting center. This was what was clearly like a three-year-old and a five-year-old being forcibly kidnapped. What's interesting is when Maldus brings this up, Crace is very defensive of his father And we learn that that's why he's so protective of his brother. And it just, it's this very interesting interplay because at no point do you ever see Crace blaming the peacekeepers for what happened to his brother. He's so fixated on John. And he honestly believes that his father would have been proud of him and his brother for ranking so high in the peacekeepers command structure rather than realizing that his father probably didn't want this life for him. Yeah. And it's his father placing responsibility for his brother's life onto Kreis, Bialar Kreis, and his brother Tuvo. And it's actually, I was just thinking, it's actually a very supernatural dynamic where the older brother is responsible for the life of the younger brother and takes on that responsibility to such a degree that it destroys them. The same way that, you know, Dean offers his life up to demons and all sorts of things for Sam, Mm -hmm. you know, Crace here is willing to do anything and murder anybody and disregard orders all to alleviate that guilt that he has that he failed his brother. Mm-hmm. And he's displacing all of his failure, what he perceives as his failure, onto John as the cause of it. Mm-hmm. There's actually an interesting quote I want to play where, and we can discuss a little more later how John keeps almost getting through to Crace. But there's this moment where John essentially says, I didn't mean to kill your brother. And they're talking through a wall. So that's the reason that Crace is, even though he's reaching through the wall trying to get to John, he can't quite reach him. They're in this very maze-like environment. Yeah. And I want to play this quote where we really begin to understand why, even though he understands that John fundamentally couldn't have meant to kill Tuvo. Tauvo? Tuvo? I can't remember. Yeah. Tauvo? Yeah, that sounds right. To kill Tauvo. He still wants to kill John. Nothing can stop me from killing you. Listen, please listen. You're beating yourself up because you were supposed to protect your brother. I understand that now. And you can believe this or you can shine it, but honest to God, I tried to get clear. I didn't mean for him to crash and I'm sorry he's dead. You understand that? It doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. It changes nothing. Talvo is dead. Struck down by a weak, pathetic, inferior being. It must be avenged! I swear in Talvo's name, Crichton, 
You will die in my hands. So we have Crace. You know, he's listening to John. He hears him, but he doesn't care. Like, he is so far into this headspace where he just cannot let Talva's life be unavenged. That is part of his worldview. And I think it's part of the peacekeeper worldview because he, Crace doesn't have a healthy outlet for his grief. He has no way to process it because the peacekeeper society weakness this is the weakness that they are fighting against when they talk about not having personal ties or personal ties being weak this is the behavior that Crace is exhibiting that they want to prevent i mean obviously it's impossible because sebations they still have feelings they still love and they still hate and they still have all these relationships with each other that have to be expressed somehow and it's like the ultimate repression and he just the only way he can cope with this is to kill john that is the only way he believes he will be able to find some sort of peace and John tries all sorts of arguments with Crace. I mean, he tries the truth, which you see a reprise of right here. He tries basically saying, I'm too primitive. I couldn't have. <laughs> How could I possibly have done this on purpose? I'm too primitive. I'm the Flintstones, Crace. My, my, my ship was basically the Flintstones foot car. <laughs> right? And that one, you know, obviously that resonates a little bit with Crace because he still thinks John is primitive and useless. And the third one is finally he's like, okay, let's let's fight against Maldus together. And that one basically goes nowhere either. Because for Crace, it's all about, you know, his brother is dead. He can't get him back. The only thing that he thinks will make him feel better is vengeance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the reason I like that quote so much is because we have Crace actually admitting that John didn't mean to kill Talvo and that it just doesn't matter. That what matters is... His brother is dead. And that's kind of why I go back to him not feeling angry at the peacekeepers, if that makes sense. Because mm -hmm. it technically was the peacekeepers that got his brother killed. The peacekeepers took him from essentially, I don't know, let's guess an agricultural society. Because it seems like the peacekeepers that aren't peacekeepers, or it seems that the sebations that aren't peacekeepers tend to be agrarian in some form. So he took him from a peaceful society where likely he wouldn't have died young to a job that's extremely dangerous. And yet, Crace wants to kill, he wants somebody to answer for this. And Peacekeeper High Command isn't going to answer for his brother's death. John will answer for his brother's death. Yeah, that's the one person he can make pay for it, because Peacekeepers are this monolith. They don't even know people as an individual. They're all part of this collective. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit like the Borg. Uh, I don't even know if the Borg, because the Borg are like one hive mind. True. I think it's kind of like maybe the Romulans, I would think, would be a better analogy. Or the okay, Klingons. Yeah, I can see that. Actually, the Klingons, I think. No, the Klingons would be a worse analogy because Klingons, they hold on to their grief. They hold on to their anger. They hold on to their emotions. I think the Romulans is the best example. Okay. Let's go with Romulans. Okay. That got but where it's, where it's <laughs> in service to the empire. Yeah. You know, and, and everyone is supposed to sacrifice for that duty to the empire and the empire only that's what they expect that's what they want and they do not care about the individual at all mm -hmm. and the other thing this episode does really well is it contrasts Crace's physical appearance with not just peacekeeper norms but with his first appearance because this is the first time we've we've seen Crace since episode one like his his shadow has loomed very large but this is the first time we've seen him and he is falling apart yeah, his hair is all frizzy and it's coming out of his ponytail that, you know, the rat ponytail that they have. He's 
He's wearing kind of like a dressing coat. I don't know, like a dressing yeah, gown. Like coat. a dressing it's like gown. Really weird costuming choice, but it makes him feel like he just rolled out of bed. Like he hasn't been sleeping well. He's clearly frenetic. He's snapping at his officers in command. He's only trusting his lieutenant, who's his second in command. And then he doesn't even trust her at the by the end of it because he's so dead set on disobeying orders that he cannot have any liabilities or any loose ends. So he ends up snapping the neck of the one person who was still supporting him on his ship. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's really, it's really kind of sad and pathetic, especially once you get this backstory, because the backstory really kind of humanizes, sebationizes Grace. <laughs> I mean, he is a person with feelings and connections, and there are reasons for his behavior. That's not justifying his behavior at all, because as we know, reasons are not excuses. But it's a really, it puts him into a different context, I think. And that's one of the really good things that this episode does. So he's not just some megalomaniac evil villain chewing the scenery. He actually has motivations that are valid and actually make sense in universe. And yeah, it does remind me of that Brooklyn Nine-Nine quote of like, cool motive, still murder. Oh yeah, (laughs) that's crazy in a nutshell. (laughs) Um, Because essentially... One of the things we see is we'd met one of the crews of or one of the commando crews of a Marauder earlier, but it turns out he's literally been sending out all of his crews, like Marauder crews, nonstop for what we assume has been months. And so an officer actually comes to him and is like, hey, it's getting unsafe. You have had these pilots working nonstop. They need a break. And if a peacekeeper is telling you that they need a break... It, then it's clearly been beyond the pale. Oh, yeah. Shit's getting real. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> this is Worf telling you he wants a break. Yeah. We're getting really Star Trek heavy this episode. <laughs> uh, well, Star Trek did pioneer some of these great sci-fi tropes that we're yeah. talking about in this episode. Yeah. So, Crace and Crichton are in this death match. And although this isn't a fan favorite episode, and I remembered it, I think, a little worse than it actually is as an episode. It's not like a it's not like a shining star of an episode, but it wasn't as bad as I remembered either. Yeah, it's it's solid. And I think it has some some good plot points that it has to make. Like, for instance, what we already mentioned, Crace having a reason to continue chasing Crichton. Mm-hmm. And also there's a couple interesting John characterization notes that I want to talk about. And then also, we'll get to this in a minute, but Zan's character, which also gets a huge conflict for her to handle. Yeah. And so from that perspective, from these little character beats, it's kind of like a setup episode for what's coming later. Yeah. That's that's actually kind of important. Yeah. And actually, that was I, I think that's kind of what I was going for, is that even though this isn't like a fondly remembered episode, it actually does set up the reasoning for essentially the rest of the season. Because... Yeah. If because as viewers, you kind of have been asking, wait, Crace is in charge of this giant military command vessel. Why haven't they called him back? Wait, what if John could just sit down and talk to Crace and explain it to him? You know, just all these like little niggling plot threads that I think have really firmly been wrapped up in this episode that Crace is going to continue at all costs if John sat him down. Nope, still wouldn't make a difference. Yeah, it didn't work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about John for a second because he's the other half of this death match that's happening and he's the one trying to talk his way out of it and there's nothing he can do. And he actually ends up getting into all sorts of physical confrontations with Crace as well. I mean, the very first one is Maldus basically saying, you can talk all you want. He's going to try and kill you while you're talking, though. And what I find interesting about this is, is John persists in trying to talk his way out. And once he realizes that 
Maldus is is feeding on their aggression and they're trying to kill each other, um, he actively tries to not be aggressive and not be physical and not feed into Maldus's game either. And so he actually gets the upper hand against Crace once when they have these like lance things, mm-hmm. um, but he doesn't kill Crace at that point. That's fairly early on. And then later on, they they end up with chains. And he Maldus says, "Well, are you going to attack him now?" And John drops the chain and says, "Basically, no." And he keeps running and running and running. Mm-hmm. But none of it works. And in between all this, he keeps trying to get through to Crace and trying to get through to Crace. And it just, every tack he takes just gets summarily rejected. Like, there are some cracks in the wall, but they don't last for more than like half a minute before Crace shores up his anger or Maldus shores up his anger or both. It just feeds back into this Crace's need for vengeance that just can't be broken through. Mm-hmm. And for John, so by the end of this, you know, Maldus gives him this option of, okay, one of you can leave here, but the other one has to die because Maldus wants to eat. So John finally is like, okay, I'm done talking and gets into this slugfest with Crace. And it really is this time trying to kill him. And this is the thing I wonder because John and violence on the show so far, he's avoided it when he can. He is the one who calls for others for help. He is, tries to talk his way out. Would he have killed Crace if he had gotten him into that position again where he could have killed him at that very end of the episode? That's something I actually don't know the answer to. Yeah, I think the show kind of maybe leaves it a little bit ambiguous, but I think there's such resignation in John. I don't even think at this point he's killing him because he actually thinks that Maldus will let him go. Because he mm-hmm. very clearly doesn't trust Maldus. He thinks he's a scumbag. He understands that Maldus is not is a liar. Like, he he genuinely understands that Maldus is a liar. But there's this resignation in his tone when Maldus finally goads him to the point of agreeing to kill Chris. Let's listen. Chris is an animal. I thought I could raise him with him. You can't. It's him or you. Shut up. I don't never bother you. And you want gladiators? Fine. You got him. Tell Christ that I'm waiting for him. So you're done talking to him? Yeah. All done. So you can hear there when John is like, yeah, no more talking. That I think he would have killed Crace, and not because Maldus wanted it, but because Crace would have killed him. Mm-hmm. Because this is a situation where there is no second option. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. I still have this like little bit of doubt for, about that because I could also see him going as far as knocking him out and rendering Crace unconscious and then having this huge moment of hesitation and it being a charged moment because he's never killed anyone yet. He doesn't know that he is capable of that yet. Mm-hmm. And whether or not Maldus would then, this is in this alternate universe of what happens here, <laughs> would, whether Maldus would have, killed him himself or forced the issue by taking John to the point where like sucking his life away until he is forced to. Because I find, I think that choice would still be extremely difficult for John at this stage, even if he would have gone ahead and done it just because there was no other choice. Yeah. And Maldus is, oh my God, I hate Maldus. But anyway. Maldus is so stupid. (laughs) Yeah, right. I mean, we can talk about why he's so stupid in a minute. But when John does get the upper hand on Chris and he's literally choking him out, Maldus sends Chris back to his ship. And we learn that the reason is, the reason Maldus set up this death match is, yes, he wants to eat, but the real reason is 
He wants the command carrier because Maldus feeds on death. And what more death can be wrought than with a command carrier? Yeah, it's, it's a, basically a city-wide weapon of war. Yeah, it's a giant weapon of war. Yeah, you think uh, Navy, what are they called? Navy, now command, I want to call them carriers. carriers. Yeah, they're yeah. like carriers, I think so. But you think our Navy is like a city on a boat. You know, this is a city in space, probably like three mm-hmm. or four or five, ten times larger of pure killing machines. Mm-hmm. This is the Death Star, essentially. <laughs> it's a floating Death yeah. Star. But actually, talking about John looking for that third way out of, you know, he can't lay down his life and die. He can't kill Craze. But him not really finding a third option, that's also the same issue that Zan is struggling with this episode. Essentially, what's been happening is that Zan and Aaron and Dargo found John's body and they take it to this shopkeeper that Jan had been, or that Jan, (laughs) they take it to this shopkeeper that Zan had been like having flirty, sexy times with and talking about having like, you know, hooking up with two backs with. (laughs) It's actually pretty cute. Yeah, it's super. I'm like, ah, I like you too. You're cute. So they take John to his shop and he essentially tells them about Maldus and he says he's an evil sorcerer. And there is an interesting interplay about the characters that actually believe that Maldus is a sorcerer and the characters that just believe that he's got tricks. And I think it kind of goes to that quote of like anything that closely, you know, any technology that's sufficiently advanced resembles magic. And where even Maldus, when he like first pulls John in, he's like, oh, the translator microbes don't have any words for how I did that. It's just because I wanted it. And so you don't really you don't really know if Zan and Dargo really believe that Maldus is a wizard. Right. If they say wizard or magician. Uh, Sorcerer. Sorcerer. Oh, my God. That's so much better. (laughs) <laughs> so they don't really <laughs> right. Did oh you just cackle? <laughs> a sorcerer for real? Oh, I'm a dying. A sorcerer, yes. <laughs> so anyway, or if they just understand that his technology is and his state of being is so sufficiently advanced that they don't really know what it is. Right, and it says a lot because Aaron's the skeptic here, right? Aaron's like, we're just gonna get some guns and go shoot him, he, you know. But the red guy is like, no, he's incorporeal. And Dargo has this look on his face of like mm-hmm. country bumpkin, basically, of like wide eyes, mouth slightly parted as he's listening to this tale. And Aaron is just, she thinks they're all stupid for it. Let's play that one. The entire planet is subjugated by one man. Not a man, a cruel and malevolent being who's learned how to transcend corporeal form. If you all rose against him, then- We'd all die. I know how invincible Maldus is. Before he came, I was a high priest. You were. I fought back, but my spiritual powers weren't strong enough. It amuses Maldus to keep me alive, in poverty. He especially likes fresh victims. The rest of you will soon follow. Not if we leave this planet first. You can't escape Muldus's grasp. Even in space, hundreds, thousands of metres away, he can get at you. And do what? This. He can rip your spirit from your body. How can we fight against that? We can fight. Where is this Muldus? He's taken over the complex at the end of the bazaar. None of us go near it. Well, he's done very well to terrorise primitive people. Let's go back to Moya, get some weapons, and see how he does against a pair of soldiers. I really like this quote because it has Aaron and Dargo again setting themselves up as soldiers and 
it does have that that moment of like Zan and Dargo kind of disbelieving. It's a little bit parallel to Thank God It's Friday again, but it feels very different because in Thank God It's Friday again, at no point did the crew be like, oh, we're just going to leave these people subjugated by this creature. And here you get the feeling that if they thought cutting and running would work, they would cut and run and kind of be like, okay, sorry, John, you're dead. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Well, actually, it's interesting you bring up thank God, thank God it's Friday again because there is a moment early on where Aaron's like, okay, we can leave Dargo and mm-hmm. go because he's happy here. You know, so they that actually is a consideration they make, but it doesn't last long, and it doesn't last long here either because Crichton is out of his body and looks dead. And Zan has been talking with this former priest and actually, you know, through talking with him, comes to believe that this is this, is this really malevolent being that they're up against with powers that only she can, because she is a ninth level Pau, can mm-hmm. um, combat against, really. And going back to Aaron and Dargo for a minute, there's this juxtaposition between them of, yes, they're the two warriors, but they're having these two completely different takes on an enemy that they cannot see and they do not know exactly what he can do. They can't even get into the building that he's mm-hmm. supposedly staying in because their weapons disappear or they get frozen or you know, all these things happen that prevent them and their their normal way of fighting is not working and Dargo gets that fairly immediately and makes him want to run away scared. But Aaron is just like, no, we just gotta keep fighting. There's better weapons. This is ridiculous. We just haven't found the right weapon yet. The right weapon turns out to be yeah. Zan. So maybe we'll, let's talk about Zan for a minute, because she has the other major character arc that's kind of oh, heartbreaking God, this in a lot kills of ways. Me. Because the setup has been there's this cute little bird that john thinks is a pet which it's so cute it's so cute we're gonna play the introduction to this adorable two-headed bird it's so cute oh my god just uh and again with the puppetry (laughs) there check this out one critter two-part harmony focus don't get it then too few heads they come with more yeah more heads to put a value they are their brains the tastiest part yeah right like you'd cook this guy and eat his brains. Cook? Never. Raw. <laughs> and it's really, really cute, adorable little puppet. So many props to the prop department here because <laughs> it's like so cute. It's like got this little horn on the top. It looks like a like a mini little dinosaur with two heads that's just like a uh, cat, yeah. cat sized, and you would just want it's to take like it rainbow. home and it chirps. And John's enchanted with it, and the audience, at least I'm enchanted with it. And then Aaron's like, yeah, it's food, which, you know, it's a good way to set it up. But then later on, so Zan, as a ninth level Pau, she has spiritual power that she can use to fight against Maldus. And this priest says, you have to use that power for evil, essentially. You have to use it to harm Maldus and fight him. And that is against everything that the Mm -hmm. Delvian Sikh stands for. And it's against that everything that Zan has has tried to train herself to be above. Mm Right. Because remember that quote we had back in in Thank God's Friday again, when she says, I used to be a savage. And when I was in prison, that's when I started this Delvian Sikh to become a priest and become better than that. And that's what comes up again here. And so the training begins with the priest dude, the red priest dude, making her hurt this innocent, harmless, little, very cute, Mm -hmm. two headed little puppet. 
and it's just so hard to watch. Like, this is the hardest part of the episode to watch. It's like, Farscape doesn't have dogs in yeah. it, but this would be a dog warning. I mean, the thing doesn't die. Yeah. Just to no, tell you right now. There's no puppet but death it's really here. hard to watch. And and the setup is interesting because what you have is Zan harming. I'm going to assume that if it is like a multi-headed bird creature that you're supposed to eat, it's kind of supposed to be like eating, I don't know, some bird here, like eating chicken. Do you know what I mean? Like, even though technically you're eating the brains, yeah. it's like eating chicken more than like eating, let's say. I have eaten chicken brains. Yeah. It is so a delicacy. It is like eating a chicken, let's say, where it's technically doesn't have enough higher brain functions to be necessarily conscious or there aren't as many ethics with it. But it is still such a struggle to see her not just killing and eating something, but actively torturing it. That's what this guy yeah, is torture. To he isn't like, oh, you have to kill this thing. He's like, you have to put this thing in pain because he understands that killing something isn't necessarily going to be the problem for her. It's putting the thing through pain that would be the problem. And it's it's really painful. And at the end of their torture session, there's this moment that Zan actually breaks down. I think I'd like to play that right now. You're right, I was once capable of cruelty. But now I have evolved past that. Evolved? Try repressed. You've choked off all your real emotions. That's not true. You think you've smothered your inner fire and found enlightenment. But all you've done is make yourself cold. Look at you. Struggling to contain what you're feeling. Fighting to keep control. What is it you're so afraid of? Uh, I'm not afraid. Come on, you're terrified. I am a Dalvian Pa'u. Nothing can frighten me if I do not wish it. You can't wish your fear away. Face it. Admit what it is you're scared of. Are you afraid of Maldus? You can destroy him. That's what terrifies me. Ugh. Rough. In this whole scene, Zan has tears streaming down her face. She's got this body language that's very defensive. She's backing up against the wall. And she's just retreating, like this whole thing of mentally, physically, spiritually, she's she's retreating. And it's it's really tough to watch because this conflict is coming out of her of who she used to be and who she has to be now, now that she's created this better life for herself. She has to go back to when she was a savage. And what was, and what's terrifying her, as she says, is her ability herself, you know, her mm -hmm. ability to kill Maldus. Yeah. And it's really a good a good physicality we see to Zan in this episode because she does cry more in this episode than we've ever I don't think we've ever seen her shed a tear before and here this whole episode pretty much from when they learn about Maldus until the very end of the episode in almost every scene she's crying yeah and it's silent tears yeah it is it's silent tears which makes it more painful and what's interesting to me is that idea that I'm a Delvian Sikh, so no emotion can get in me if I don't want it, which is different than I think a lot of Earth-based spiritualities. For example, like I think the best analogy for you know the Delvian Sikh would be Buddhist monks, where they do acknowledge emotions, but because they don't hold on to those emotions, they disappear. Whereas here we have Zan literally saying that she doesn't feel these things, that they do not exist in her, rather than 
yes, they exist, but I let them go kind of thing. Yeah, except here we get to see that even though she's denying them, they do exist. Like she cannot be separated from her fears in this mm -hmm. and her fear of herself. And that's her struggle throughout this episode. And that's her character arc. So she has two choices in this episode. She can let Maldus basically keep and kill John and potentially come and kill the rest of them too, because he likes fresh victims. Or she can delve into this really dark part of her, her past, the savage that she was before she became a priest and draw that part of her back to back mm -hmm. to the forefront of her and take on Maldus mm -hmm. and try and take him out. And she wants to do neither one of them. Yeah, she, th these are the two choices. She wants to find a third way. And what's interesting is I don't think that the high priest of this planet is necessarily being fair to her when he says she's repressed her emotions. Because I do think that the spirituality of Seekhood hasn't led her to necessarily repress her emotions. And I don't think she's right either about evolving past them. But I think that she just has changed as a person. I don't think she's repressing who she was as a person. I think she's just changed as a person to the point where she doesn't feel that way anymore, where she couldn't naturally kill something. And actually, he kind of pushes her to not just a dark place, but a really dark place, because it's not just killing Maldus. Later on, when she comes back and agrees to train to kill Maldus, she starts to torture the birds again. And then we stop that pretty early because Rigel calls and he says, you know what, this is a better test. And so she has to torture Rigel, which is dark. I'm sorry, that's really dark. Oh, my God. It was really hard to watch that. I mean, it was hard to watch the birds. It was really hard to watch Rigel because the other thing is, she and Rigel have this relationship where, you know, she respects him. They actually have this kind of camaraderie going on. I mean, it's not anything super profound at this point, but it's there. And they, Zan is probably Rigel's best mm -hmm. friend on the ship, really. I mean, she's the one he can get any amount of respect out of or any amount of help or, you know, conversations about Rigel the first. And to see her without question, without telling Rigel, shift her focus of her of her torture pain hand wiggling thing onto Rigel, who's up in Moya, by the way. So she's doing this long distance too, which is part of the exercise. It's just really hard to watch. And you're just like, oh, Zan, baby, yeah. please don't do that. And I also don't necessarily understand how that was helpful. Like torturing a creature that you don't care about or even torturing a creature you don't like, I think that would have been more effective. Torturing Rigel is just, it's just unnecessary yeah. almost. Yeah, well, that was one reason I just really did not like the Red Priest dude because his training regimen, which granted was like three scenes, seemed completely pointless for going up against Maldus because Maldus is a, an antagonist. Like, he is a creature hurting her friend John and somebody that she doesn't have any positive mm -hmm. feelings for already. So why does she need to hurt innocent creatures and her friend in order to better yeah. hurt somebody she to, doesn't in like? In order to better hurt somebody that's a threat to her because I think that kind of goes back to why they aren't just leaving John is because Maldus is technically going to come back and be a threat to them and so that kind of yeah. that kind of ties John and Zan in this episode because she explicitly is looking for a third way and I think there's this really good moment after Aaron and Dargo have tried to blast their way through Maldus's door and it hasn't worked. And Zan kind of comes up to them and they have this interesting conversation that I want to play. Then what can hurt him? I can. Oh, 
Well then, off to you. What are you waiting for? A third choice. Although I know there are any two. Let that evil flourish, or unleash another evil against it. How would you choose? I suppose I would choose the lesser evil. So in that scene, you have, have Zan really wanting to find another choice. And you get these also interesting character notes from Aaron, who is, she just wants to blast the door. She just wants the work. And she's like, well, if you can do it, why aren't you doing it? Because she's all about fighting and fighting and fighting. Mm -hmm. And then you have Dargo, who is really being empathetic to Zan's predicament here. I mean, Zan's framing it as two evils. And Dargo is the quiet one who is understanding that this is severely difficult for, for Zan mm -hmm. and is being as compassionate as anyone can be and giving her an answer that she can live with. Yeah. The character note for Dargo in this episode is just so good because I think if Aaron had answered that question, she would have told Zan that killing Maldus wasn't an evil because Aaron believes in the peacekeeper mentality of you kill or you subjugate creatures that are hurting other creatures and that's good, even, even if it creates a very black and white view of the work that they do. Mm -hmm. But then you do see Dargo here who understands what's really going on and that he understands that to Zan, even, even killing an evil creature puts her in a place of evil. Yeah. Yeah. And the way he says it is like, I would choose the lesser of the two. You know, it's an old earth adage, but still very true here. Mm -hmm. But basically still framing it as his choice as opposed to a you must do something, which I think is how Aaron would approach it. She would say, just suck it up and do it very bluntly, mm -hmm. you know, if she had been answering that question. Mm -hmm. Which she actually does. She's like, why aren't you doing anything about it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it, because it does go back to her, oh, you guys are weak. You know, let me, I'm a soldier. Let me get in there and I'll, you know, bing, bang, and it's done kind yeah. of thing. And I don't know, just Zan's whole struggle this episode is, is really painful and heartbreaking. And I think that writers did a really good job of earning that because, you know, you have several conversations and several decisions she has to make that walk her down this path. And it kind of ends. So she and, you know, she and the priest go up against Maldus and they win and the priest dies in the experience. And which is kind of a bummer for his planet, because I assume they're going to need a leader after <laughs> Maldus is gone. <laughs> yeah, well, they'll figure it out. Yeah, they'll figure it out. But it ends on this note where she goes back to the ship and she meets up with Aaron and Dargo and Aaron is trying to give her a compliment. And when Aaron says it, the expression on Zan's face is is just heartbroken and terrified at the same time. Zan, Crichton told us that you two killed Maldus. Even in his semi-corporeal form, Maldus could not be killed. But he could be dispersed. He will coalesce someday. Zan, I feel I must apologize to you for mocking your courage. I see now that you are more of a warrior than I ever thought. What is the matter with her? You called her a warrior. You could not have cut her more deeply. Yeah, so you get this other instance of Aaron not quite getting it and Dargo getting it instantly. That for Zan, fighting and being a warrior is not who she wants to be at all. 
Mm-hmm. Whereas for Erin, it's the end all be all. It's the only way she knows how to compliment somebody. Yeah, right. I know it was kind of like super awkward because you like you could tell that Aaron was reaching out and trying to like compliment her. And I think that if it was if Zan was in a different emotional place, she would have understood better where Aaron was coming from. And I think she would have possibly taken it as a compliment given Aaron's intention. But I think that because of what happened, Zan really just is in this emotionally devastated place. Oh, yeah. She's really fragile. She's really hurt. And she's still hurting. And she's going to be hurting for a while. Like, that's one of the the things about her conflict that it doesn't go away. Whereas with John, for instance, like he's had to, he got to a place where he was beating up Crace and going the violent route. And at the end of the episode, he's he's getting through it by talking on his audio recorder to DK back on Earth, kind of his diary. And when Zan comes in, he basically frames it as this was a one-time thing, you know, let's move on from it. But Zan cannot move on from it. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to play that scene right there because it's also devastatingly heartbreaking. John, before I became a priest, I, I was a savage. Yeah, I think I remember you saying that. No, I don't know that I ever believed it. You've never seen that part of me. I thought I'd eradicated it forever. Well, you resurrected it once to deal with Maldicides. Over. No, it's not. I feel it inside me still. Now I have to rid myself of it again. And I don't know if I can do it, John. Well, is there anything I can do to help? Oh, come on, there must be something. I mean, even if it's just being a good listener. No one can help me. I'm sorry. I mean, and you have there Zan admitting weakness, and it's painful. It's doubly painful because she essentially says, I got rid of this once, and I don't know if I can do it again. And then immediately after, you have John kind of being like, I can help. How can I help? What can I do? And she turns around and she uses that same power she used to hurt the bird to hurt John. And it's this agonizing moment. Yeah, she's she's lashing out because she's really through this whole experience. She's had to basically break her sense of self. And this is real identity crisis for her. Mm-hmm. An identity crisis or even like an alcoholic, you know, failing and having a drink again after however many years of sobriety. Mm-hmm. This person that she thought she was, that she thought she became better than, she's, she realizes once more that, that she can hurt and she can enjoy it. And that she still has that capability is, makes her wonder if she ever changed at all. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a really hard thing to confront with anybody, and especially for someone who who has had this really wide range of experience of being someone who is arrested for anarchy and being a savage, but then going to being a very peaceful, strong still. I mean, like, she will fight if she needs to, but within her own terms, she's okay with it. But having to discard all of her own terms is what she had to do here. She had to she had to go back to being who she was and she didn't like that person at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's a good point of breaking her sense of self because I think it's more than that. It's broken her personal narrative. Like her narrative for herself and the narrative that she tells to other people is 
I was this, I was a savage, I did this horrible crime, I was in prison, and then in prison, I made the conscious decision to become a better person, and then I became a better person, and that's who I am today, and that's what I am today. And instead, by realizing that she still does like pain and that she still can inflict pain, that it's within her to still do that, now her personal narrative is, I did this horrible thing, I was in prison, I made the decision to be a better person, but I was never actually a better person. Yeah. But it was always still inside me to be evil. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's just, and And Farscape is such a good show because it sticks with that. It sticks with Zan being in that emotional place for a while. It's not like, it's it's not like Stargate, which is a show I like, and or, or you know, even a lot of Star Trek. <laughs> you know, like in Star <laughs> Trek, Captain Picard gets taken over by the Borg and they have like, one episode of emotional like recovery. Yeah. Farscape is a show that like sticks with people in their emotional places. It doesn't let them off the hook. Yeah. I think it's it's a credit to this episode that they take someone other than the main character mm-hmm. and putting them through this ringer. Doesn't I mean Zan is one of the ensemble, obviously, but the fact that she gets this really emotionally rich journey to go on is really kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for certain. I want to get to the one before we wrap up. I think this is hands down the funniest scene in Farscape in the first eight episodes. Very easily for me. I was sitting oh, and yeah. I, I've and it's a credit to the again, it's just a credit to the series that I've seen this episode probably, I don't know, at least two times before this. And I still I was dying with laughter. Let's play it. It's the best. It's Rigel. Here we go. I don't know your customs for these situations. Not that I care. So I'll give you the Hynerian ceremony of passage and be done with it. (coughs) John Crichton, valued friend. Now, wait a minute. Valued friend is a bit of a stretch. John Crichton, unwelcome shipmate. Hmm. May you have safe transport to the hallowed realm. Actually, not our hallowed realm. No, that's for Hynerians. Go find your own hallowed realm. With the ceremony of passage complete, I declare you officially dead and claim all your possessions for myself. Oh my god, I'm dying. No, actually, not <laughs> our hollowed realm. Go find your own. It's still the, oh, no, not a friend. <laughs> Unwanted shipmate. <laughs> oh god, I'm dying. That's so funny. Yeah. No, yeah, Rigel steals the show in that one episode. So if you're on the fence about watching this episode, that is one reason to watch yeah, it. Yeah, Rigel is just... Oh, the best. And then he has a he has another scene later that where like John wakes up and Rigel is literally in the process of stealing John's boots. And Rigel, John like wakes up and Rigel's like super self-defensive, like, oh, they wanted to throw you out an airlock, but I thought I could save you, so I saved you. And John's like hugging the puppet, and you're like, oh my god, it's just so oh Rigel. I think so this is one good. of the first instances of him kissing the puppet, too. <laughs> <laughs> Rigel gets a big one. <laughs> 
Because John's just so happy to be alive. <clears throat> this is so good. Have, have we done White Shirt Watch we yet? We haven't done White Shirt Watch. So in White Shirt Watch, John Crichton is not only wearing his white shirt, which I will point out that at this point is looking kind of gray, which maybe goes to Oh, it's to definitely your, gray. Yeah. I mean, I think it goes to your point of, is he actually washing his clothes? And I think this answers it. And the answer is no. And in addition, he is wearing his god-awful yellow Ayasa jumpsuit, which is me interpreting that to mean as his pants are dirty and he doesn't have any other pants to wear, so he's wearing the jumpsuit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that does it doesn't even look super comfy, like the jumpsuit. No, it is baggy and, and just hideous. And it's just like, why? Why would you do that? <laughs> All right, so on that note, what would you give this episode? I would give it a three in retrospect. Like... When I first watched it last night, I was actually thinking more of a two, but then in, in thinking about it and talking about it, I actually think it's a three. Mm. Yeah, I think that I, I would go with three. You know, it definitely isn't any higher. It's not a it, it's not a great episode, but I think the character beats and the fact that it wraps up so many of those like hanging plot threads that are probably bugging a lot of people, you know, I think it does it does its job pretty well. Yeah, it, it's solid. It, it sets some stuff up. It wraps things up, but Maldus is really a dumb villain. I don't like Maldus. Yeah, I mean, he just looks ridiculous and random and stupid. And like, why does he exist? Why is he wearing that like Shakespeare, like that black Shakespearean collar? These are the questions yeah. I have. <laughs> Maldus is just ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, I think his costume change alone, going from like the rug wearing. Like when he's pretending to like when he's reeling John in and he wears and he's wearing like literally like a rug and he's pretending yeah. to be like the old sorcerer. Right. And before before that, he was the court jester and it was just really annoying and stupid and dumb. And then he's like in black shit. He looks like Hamlet or something. And I'm like, oh, God, yeah. stop. And he talks so Australian. Like, I love Australian accents, but I find it really annoying that he keeps switching from, like, an Aussie accent to, like, random other accents. Yeah. So sorry if you like Maldus out there. He's just not one of my villains. <laughs> Farscape does so many better villains than him. All right. So next time. Next time is... I know the episode, but I can't remember the title. <laughs> next time is DNA Mad Scientist. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. So definitely check that one out. And... If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes. Tell other people find us, and we will see you next week. Bye.